Welcome to Our Social Impact, brought to you by the Prison Scholar Fund. The Prison Scholar Fund's mission is to provide education and employment assistance to help currently and formerly incarcerated people succeed and thrive in society while avoiding homelessness and the revolving door of reincarceration. The PSF also advocates for reform in correctional education to increase opportunity for all. As a nonprofit, we rely on investments, volunteers, and are always looking for board members to champion our mission. Please connect with us through our website at prisonscholars.org, where you can find volunteer opportunities, make a contribution, and learn about becoming a board member. You can also email us at info at prisonscholars.org and find us through most social media platforms at Prison Scholars. Become a patron by supporting us directly at Patreon with at Prison Scholars. We appreciate your review of this podcast through whatever platform you listen through. Without further ado, here's Dirk Van Velsen, founder and CEO of the Prison Scholar Fund. So today we have Donald Summers of Altruist Partners. Donald, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dirk. Great to be here. So tell me about yourself. How did you end up here? Uh, social impacts, why we live and breathe. I work at a, I founded a management consultancy about 16 years ago, and we're working on scaling nonprofits at the pace of for profits, something that badly needs to happen. And how do you do that? Well, long story, but we'll try to keep it tight. Um, Altruist is part of a movement that I think traces its genesis to this guy at Harvard, um, Alan Grossman, who wrote an article in 1998, and he said, what, ha- what would happen if we used the principles of venture uh, capitalism in philanthropy? And he wrote this article and got a lot of people's attention. And essentially, uh, out of this, um, you had another uh, some pioneering uh, venture philanthropy uh, organizations like New Profit, our friend Brian Screener works at, um, and some other people who said, "Gosh, okay, let's instead of just giving nonprofits small amounts of money, let's really look holistically at the organizations. What do they need to do to scale?" The context is really fascinating. You've got since nineteen, a bridge band wrote an article on the Stanford Social Innovation Review uh, that said that basically. Uh, said fewer than um, 200 nonprofits have scaled from scratch past 50 million since 1960, but 75,000 for profits have. So, other than the uh, the large nonprofits and the legacy nonprofits, the Eds and Meds, uh, we've got one and a half million nonprofits in the United States that are not scaling, and that's kind of the background statement of the problem. And you've got 50, 60,000 charitable foundations all giving out um, small amounts of money. And what we're seeing is we've got uh, 10%, that 9 or 10% of our gross domestic pro- uh, products in the nonprofit sector. Most of it's hospitals and universities. And so this movement that I referred to earlier, what could we do to scale the smaller nonprofits at the pace of business? What happens? Couldn't we get more social impact if we thought like um, entrepreneurs and, and enterprise uh, uh, thinkers, not just the charity mindset. Well, it's funny when you talk about the overhead myth. I was talking to somebody at a major foundation the other day, and their, kind of, their point of view was like, if you can't figure out how to allocate your funds in the right buckets, then you don't get the money. It's like, like the whole you know, 15% of overhead is just how you allocate it. So 
Well, it, well exactly. It, the, the problem comes by measuring financial performance is relatively simple, right? Um, you have, we have a toolkit for that, but how do you measure non-financial performance? How do you measure social impact? And the absence, uh, because charities, nonprofits were measuring outputs, not outcomes, um, the, they got put on the menu by the foundations that say, oh, if you don't have a, a rationale for how you're spending money, we're going to tell you how to do it and we're going we're gonna to structure it because you're not giving us a structure. And there's finally been some pushback. But again, that's a little bit in the weeds. What we basically want to do is we take a look at nonprofits and say, what problem are you solving? Why are you the best? What's your goal? How are you going to get there? How are you going to measure it? What's your strategy? Uh, where are you going to get the money? Um, what are your key performance indicators? What your KPIs? Everybody in the private sector is a KPI this, KPI that. They have dashboards, they have analytics, they have sophisticated data visualization. Very few people, except for the big sophisticated nonprofits, have that. What's your market analysis? What's your competitive advantage? All these things actually translate, as we've discovered, um, in the charitable sector in a way that actually helps nonprofits grow and, and deliver exciting amounts of social impact. So it's funny when you're talking about raising money, uh, and also Stanford articles, because you wrote one the other day, or maybe a year or two ago, about uh, the Give Big campaign. No. And I actually borrowed your title as a pushback against that. So yeah. tell me, tell me, you'll do a better job telling us about your article than me. Well, um, it's there. The nonprofit sector it's filled with lovely people. We adore it, and we want everyone to win, but. It suffers um, from, uh, it needs to be positively disruptive. There needs to be people coming in and challenging the status quo. And so much of the default activity in the nonprofit sector is just plain old ineffective. So I'll, I'll cite another uh, uh, famous uh, thinker on the topic, Ken Stern. He's the former CEO of NPR. And he wrote a book uh, called With Charity for All. And in his book, he essentially highlights all of the inefficiencies of the social sector, all the things that aren't working very well uh, because people are um, using just legacy practices. Auctions. Auctions are a loser. If you're using, an, if anyone sees this, if you're using an auction to raise money for your nonprofit, um, you're suffering tremendous opportunity costs. Give big campaigns. Um, sort of collective fundraising efforts. No private organization, no scalable organization would ever pursue these things because they have very low return on investment. They're ineffective, they're inefficient. Yet for some reason, they've become uh, the cultural norms uh, in, the, in the social sector and it's, it's causing us, uh, we're losing a lot of social impact as a result. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I've talked to so many development directors that hate charity, like the, uh, hate the auctions, but they do them anyways. Like the auction per se isn't so bad, but how much time and effort and manpower goes into it before it even happens? If they took that same amount of same amount of hours spent or dollars spent doing something else, your basic perform again. This is part of this thinking. Okay, we we have to be analytical. Are we being efficient and effective with our with our organization? So one of the chief measures of effectiveness of your fundraising enterprise is cost per dollar. How much are we spending and how much are we raising? So uh, another way, it's another way of saying profit margin. So if you're, for every dollar you're raising, um, like a, a big effective fundraising organization, once it gets up to speed, will spend about 15 cents a dollar. 
and primarily using face-to-face, relationship-based uh, solicitation. It's very humane, it's very ethical. You talk to people, you say, gosh, here's what we're doing, would you like to help? And uh, you're, you're very transparent, you're very accountable. Not only is that the right thing to do, it's a smart thing to do. And yet there's a paradigm where instead of talking to people and building relationships, you use marketing, you pack them in a room, you put a auctioneer up there, you sell a bunch of stuff, um, that costs anywhere from 30 to 50% cents a dollar, you raise less money, and you're getting and spending. You're not educating the audience. And yet this is a very common uh, way, particularly here in Seattle. It's, it's, it's uh, so very common. So we at Altruist, I think we've shut down probably about 30 or 40 auctions. We still like to do events, but we uh, t- teach our clients and coach our clients to use them as relationship building, cultivation, and stewardship events. Say thank you. And that's a lot of detail, but the point is, if we're going to be effective, we have to think differently, we have to look at the data, look at the numbers, and not do something just because everybody else does it. You've got to read the literature, you've got to understand the flow of, of where the high-performing organizations are going, how are these organizations getting big. And, you know, it takes leadership and it takes a board that's involved. It's very difficult to do, actually. But um, the, the good news is the, that pathway is known. And uh, if you can go through the change, you can uh, do amazing things. And um, we're very encouraged by some of the results we've seen. So how did you end up here? What was your fundraising background before you? You started Altruist, right? Your founder? Uh, yes. Uh, I started it in 2006. Um, I, I got very, I'm a very idealistic uh, person. Um, I was an English major, you know, uh, you got the romantic poets, you got Wordsworth getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. And when I was a young kid, I saw what finance capitalism was doing to the planet. And it, it pissed me off. You've got, um, we need eight planets to uh, sustain our natural resource consumption alone. And you've got uh, massive inequities, poverty. Last thing I wanted to do is take a finance job like half my classmates at Middlebury. Um, I wanted to do something to better the world. Um, And it took me a long time to find that. Uh, I ended up teaching. And then when I finally got my uh, graduate degree in, in school leadership, I took accounting, law, finance, um, and I said, wow, what, what could we do if we use these tools for good? I kind of caught the bug. And that sent me into fundraising. And when I applied business principles in a fundraising um, environment, we uh, created 100 to 500% um, uh, increases in revenue. And I say we because you have to have, it's not just one person coming in being a, you know, genius fundraiser, you've got to have a great CEO, you got to have a great board, you got to have a team effort. But when the stars aligned, um, we were able to use this methodology to do some incredible things, save organizations for going out of business, raise lots of money for their arts, uh, for a, a wonderful foundation down in Austin that we that served um, adults with cognitive difficulty and cognitive disability, we saved them from going out of business. Um, came up here at the University of Washington, raised a lot of money for the humanities division uh, at at the College of Arts and Sciences. So I had about seven or eight years of successful experience as a fundraiser using business plans, metrics, financial projections, and what the private sector calls a consultative sales process. And and very clear, very transparent, very rigorous, and not, not telling stories, not 
um, being affective. Everyone's told, oh, you gotta tell stories. Yeah, you have to tell a story, but you also have to pass due diligence with a sophisticated investor. And then when I, I went to, uh, I got a job in philanthropy and I saw how philanthropy was working. And it was a lot of talk giving out very little money. And I was looking at the grants coming in and I said, These, the foundation I was with was giving out twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 at a time and spending half of its budget on me as its executive director. I said, these folks don't need money. They need coaching on how to scale their organizations. You could tell from the grant applications, they didn't have their value proposition nailed. They didn't have a, a vision for scale. They didn't quite have their strategies. But the foundation wasn't interested. They were really more interested in, in having um, a conversation about it and the social aspect of, of giving money away. It was like a club. It wasn't like a VC where we got really scale or die. I didn't see the urgency there. So I quit, took on two of the grantees as clients, and uh, made them both a lot of money. And that's where Ultras came out of that. We just said, hey, you've got, you know, you got real potential here. Let's write a business plan, raise a bunch of money. Don't don't just write grants. Pitch corporations, pitch high net worth individuals. Let's come up with an earned income process. We did one of the grantees we scaled using a, a licensing campaign. It had some really valuable unmonetized intellectual property that we converted to a certification program. It's, it's hard stuff to figure out, but if you come at it with a I don't want to say business because a lot of businesses aren't run well. If you come at it with like an enterprise lens with a with toolkits from not just the social sector but the private sector, uh, sparks fly. Really good things can happen, but it's hard. All right. So you mentioned business plans and value propositions. So how does a nonprofit do that when most businesses only have a business plan? Exactly. Um, you, you can never stop what you're doing and then just write a business plan. It's you're always building the airplane as you fly it. Um, we spent a lot of time, it, it, the, the, my colleagues at Altrist and I have worked with probably about 250 nonprofits um, over the past uh, you know, 13 years. We're, we're still really small. We only have about 11 or 12 of us right now. And we're not even, again, if we're so good at scaling, we need to eat our own dog food uh, and we're, we're, we're slowly growing. Um, I think we're more focused on our clients than ourselves. Uh, we work with hundreds of nonprofits and we boiled down what are the components of what we call a world-class investment grade business plan. We actually have it templated out and we have most of the, um, most of the information is, uh, I write a blog for BoardSource. I've got uh, articles on BoardSource. We've had it on the altruistpartners.com website. Um, it's easy to say and hard to do. What problem are you solving? Why are you the best? What does success look like? What's your BHAG? Uh, big, hairy, audacious goal. Um, you got to have the courage to have a BHAG and to really to, to articulate a future that's, that's radically different from it is now. Not every organization is even um, culturally or constitutionally in that space. This is really only for the organizations that are truly out to change the world, like go big or go home. Yeah, so you got your BHAG, or this big idea that you want to do. But how do you value that? Like new profit really likes to, you know, their return on investment is the public value created. Mm -hmm. In our case, you know, the Prison Scholar Fund, there's mm -hmm. a lot of external organizations that value the the benefit to society of prisoner education. But say you're running a food bank, how do you value other than a person got food? How do you put that into the dollar dollar amounts? Um, well, you you start with what problem are you solving, and 
uh, I, I wanted to actually make a, a, a significant charitable donation to a food bank here in Seattle. And I said, how many people are, um, food in, are suffering from food insecurity? And how many are you serving? And what's the gap? And what are you doing to close the gap? And, you know, first of all, they say, it's our job. The food bank has to say, it's our job to solve the problem in its entirety. Or if not, somebody else is. But if you can't answer that question, then you can't measure so you first have to say, that's why we start with the question, what problem are you solving? And that problem typically has tremendous economic, social, even moral, even spiritual uh, dimensions to it. But in the case of a food bank, you can say, hey, maybe it's not all of Puget Sound or Washington State. Maybe it's just our neighborhood. And if you, you start by having good data, and if you don't know the data, maybe partner with the University of Washington or Seattle University and, and come up to a research project. But Focus on a problem first. Too many organizations try to boil the ocean and they end up addressing 10, 20 problems at the same time. You gotta pick one, be very focused, and then if you have that focus, then you, the data will emerge from studying the issue and, and, and understanding it. And then you can get into, you know, what's our goal, how, 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 how long is it going to take us to solve this? What are strategies? What, what are the behaviors that we're going to take to actually make progress against a goal? How are we going to measure it? So, but it really all starts that that BHAG starts with understanding what your particular organization is doing. So it's kind of funny. So even if you have this big problem you want to solve and you kind of have an idea of how to get there, earlier you mentioned you're, we're always kind of flying the airplane and building at the same time. So how do you get past that stage? Because it seems like Nobody ever wants to hear about this really great infrastructure you're building. You want to hear about lives you're, you're changing, but you can't change a lot of lives until you build the infrastructure. So how do you raise money for the stuff nobody wants to pay for? Well, and, and that's the hard part, and, and this, is the, this is why only 4% of American uh, private sector businesses get over a million dollars a year. It's hard. Um, and this is why you know, I, good ideas are cheap. It's all about the execution. Right. Any investor will tell you, oh, ideas are they're a dime a dozen. But how can someone take an idea and actually build an organization around it that's scalable and sustainable? There's a lot of good books on the topic. Again, we're big fans of Jim Collins. Good to great. Great by choice. He's done all the research. Um, you need a great leader. You got to have a flywheel. You got to do your 20 mile march. It, it really demands that you um, study the best of uh, and there's a lot of bad books out there too. You got to really target what are the books that are, are really on point, and you know. And then the other thing is not just having a grasp of the literature is having good mentorship. Um, so if you're you you are a social entrepreneur, you know, uh, Dirk Van Velsen, you've got an incredible mission before you as you're discovering. You've got degrees from Stanford, and you've got all great mentors. You're working with John Legend. Um, you got people like me around who've raised millions of dollars. It's still hard, right? So um, you just really what I what we think after doing this for over a decade now, what distinguishes the most successful organizations is just the grit and the tenacity of just staying at it. You've got to have the right frameworks. You've got to know how to write a business plan. You got to be able to do it on the side while keeping your organization alive. You got to know how to execute. You got to know how to. Uh, distance yourself from the many small, like the nonprofit sectors filled with like hungry goldfish nibbling after grants. You've got to really present yourself as a, uh, a better, faster, more inspiring solution to funders. You got to have a great board. 
Uh, how do you do it? It's just, uh, it just takes incredible uh, discipline and tenacity over time. And uh, the people who really have the fire for social transformation, they stay with it. Still doesn't guarantee you succeed, but beats working for Amazon. <laughs> it's funny, you mentioned mentors, and, and you, you and I connected at one point, but before we get there, you also talk about the flywheel. So let's unpack that a little bit, because most people might not know what that is. And how do you get a flywheel spinning? Well, um, and again, I, I'm going to paraphrase Jim Collins. This is a cool concept because it's it's related to the uh, ancient Japanese um, concept of Ikigai. Ikigai is, and I'll get to flywheel in a second, Ikigai is uh, a, an old Japanese term for a reason to get out of bed in the morning. And that's why you and I are here. We, we love what we do. It's very difficult, but it's 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 you're good at it you can make you can survive you can get paid for it um it's what the world needs um and you love it so you're skilled you have the passion you can survive doing it and it's it's highly necessary when you get all four of those things overlapping um you get an incredible sense of purpose and mission in your life the flywheels is got as jim collins describes it has uh several of those components what you're good at what the world needs and what you can make money at and then once you find that, uh, and if you stay, the flywheel is very focused. Um, if you're best in the world of something and you love it and you can make money at it, if you just stay at it and refine it and stay focused, um, that's one component of a successful enterprise that grows and has social impact. But uh, yeah, I, I recommend, we only have six books that we tell our clients to read. Um, Good to Great and Great by Choice are, are both Jim Collins' books are, are essential. They're the top two of the list and talks about the flywheel and then how it connects to all the other components of the most successful organizations. And what kills me about he did this, and if I talked to him, I would just give him so much crap for this. He wrote a coda to his book called uh, Good for Great for the Social Sector. I read that one. Kills me, <laughs> and he's dead wrong. I love the guy, and I have the massive respect for him. But he listened to all these people say, oh, the nonprofit sector is totally different. And you've got people, there's very sophisticated people who are highly placed in philanthropy that say, you can't understand financial flows in nonprofits. The, the motivations are different. It's a big, mysterious landscape. That's crap. That's wrong. Uh, with all due respect to those folks, they're lovely people. But it's an organization with the same motivations and the same dynamics as any other motivation. Just because you got a C3 uh, doesn't mean that you're doomed to ineffectiveness or inefficiency. Almost all of the business literature translates um, the capital stack in the nonprofit sector. The fact that you get people giving you money and how you cultivate that, it's a consultative sales process. The dashboards, KPIs, yeah, well, it's not financial, but you've got to really think carefully. There's so much translation that can be done, and there's so many people that are proving it can be done. Go back to the Alan Grossman article. The most successful nonprofits in the past 20 years have been deploying enterprise methodology, yet because it uh, it threatens people and they think, oh, you're being a finance capitalist and we're over here in the social space and capitalism's bad. Bono, a Bono, the YouTube singer, <laughs> Bono, Bono. Bono is the share, Sonny and Cher, it's Bono. Right. Bono, uh, he was at the Skull World Forum uh, a couple years ago. He tried to do this global initiative called RED, the, the anti-poverty thing. And he said, uh, I made a real big mistake. I thought capitalism was immoral. 
Actually, it's amoral. If you point its tools in the right direction, you can create incredibly good outcomes. It's just a set of tools. The fact that most people use it to rape the planet and enrich themselves and, and harm vulnerable populations, the tools still work. And so at its core, I think that's what we do is we redirect those tools uh, towards the common good. So speaking of, we talked about mentors earlier, and I want to kind of lead into uh, your panda tank. Mm-hmm. Before we get there, you and I kind of met in an unusual way. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to hear your version of how we met because I don't think I ever heard it. Oh, Dirk, I, you know, it's been so long ago. You're, you're kind of a, a nonprofit legend, nope. right? And you've got just a great story. <laughs> really? okay. Yeah, no, you've got a great story. I'll take that. Uh, no, uh, Derek, this is your, uh, I tell people about you all the time because you're, you're the classic story of, uh, it's a uniquely American story about reinvention, about forgiveness, about new possibilities, uh, uh, and about um, you know, being creative. And uh, you've got an incredibly cool background, but, um, and you're also attacking a very, very serious problem. Um, you know, we've basically repackaged slavery as the criminal justice system in the United States. Um, it's a yeah, so you've seen the 13th or read it. Yeah, it, yeah. it it's, a, it's the stupidest thing possible. The way that we, we treat vulnerable uh, people in poverty, you know, drug offenses, the war on crime. It's just repackaging of, you know, I, I don't, you, know, you, know, you know the statistics. Um, but again, it's business as usual, and it's this people don't recognize the water that they're swimming in. And there's very few people who, who are awake enough to say, this system sucks, and we can change it. And you're inside the system, and you're trying to be a change maker. So um, I love the courage and all the things that I'm talking about, all the difficulty. You're taking out one of the biggest challenges possible, uh, hugely entrenched economic. And people make money off of this. There's a reason why we have this. It's like America's built on weapons and prisons, <laughs> half of it, yeah. and petrochemicals and big pharma. I mean, our economy is not sustainable. Um, there's a lot of people uh, trying to change that, and you know, it's great to uh, be working with one of them. So, uh, if uh, I, I don't even remember where our conversation started, but I recognized in you the uh, the courage to and uh, uh, the vision that you articulated. Um, and we at Altrus look for people like that so we can, you know, uh, try to help. Yeah, I think I bumped into you because my girlfriend at the time was working at Team Child. And apparently you were doing some kind of fundraising mm-hmm. seminar with them. Mm-hmm. And I think you got a hold of my social venture partner fast pitch video. And you were showing them my pitch and showing them this is That's how you do right. a pitch. Yep. But I never knew how you got a hold of my pitch. Uh, oh, gosh. It just came across. You know, I lose... I lost the details. Just some social media posts. No, no, I just heard about it. Um, but again, that's exactly what we teach our clients is like the, um, there's a, a great website, The Perfect Pitch by um, Resolute VC. You can Google The Perfect Bit, The Perfect Pitch Resolute VC. Beautiful explanation on how to raise money. Or uh, Guy Kawasaka got to get, knows how to do a pitch deck. And it's like nonprofits. There's your... <laughs> Include that in your grant application. I'd be talking to people about that instead of trying to sell them uh, stairmasters at your auction. Uh, you know, so when and I, you were one that actually uh, I can tell people, but I much prefer to show them other examples. So it's it's you get third party validation, and you did uh, again. You're very charismatic and articulate. So um, 
you know, it, that was very helpful. So speaking about finding people, you have a thing called Panda Tank. Mm -hmm. So tell me about that. And I'm not that familiar with it either. So do you... Oh, it's pretty funny. Tell me all about it. Well, Shark Tank, you know, obviously that's... The, and I think I saw 30 seconds of it, and it was awful. It's all these, <laughs> you know... And, it's and, fascinating. It is fascinating. And it's, all, and it's awful. And Mark Cuban's a smart guy. And I'd love to see Mark Cuban take his brains and point him to the social sector. All those brilliant people, they're hammering away... Uh, highly analytical, highly critical, but they're talking about shit that's just so banal. And, you know, products and services that are just going to, like, consume more resources and, and just make money, you know? Uh, big deal. Why all this effort? I could never get excited about a startup with, like, another app or, like, oh, we're going to really, you know, make the whole jogging experience better with this fancy... The things they talk about at the end of the day are incredibly just boring. But the energy they pour into it, Anyhow, uh, I thought, gosh, what could we do? How could we rebrand this and do the same type of um, inter interrogation? Uh, not be such jerks about it. You don't want to be harsh. That doesn't fly in the social sector. We all truly want to support each other. So we came up with a Panda as a brand. Um, so we get together. Um, and we're doing this about uh, once or twice a year now. Uh, we want to do it a lot more. You get real... Uh, experts from the social sector. People have raised money, people who know how to invest it. Our friend Brian Screenar was our last one. Jessica Ross, the Chief Development Officer at Treehouse. We had uh, Akhtar Badshaw. He was the former uh, head of global philanthropy for Microsoft. And then we'd bring up people who are of um, in, uh, some of our clients and some of our nonprofits uh, leaders in the community. Um, they'd stand up in front of the mighty pandas, as we call them, and give their um, give their not a pitch, but we say, what problem are you solving? So they stand up in front of the Mighty Pandas, kind of like a panel? Yeah, it's like a panel. And it's a, it, 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 you know, you're familiar with the dynamic of, of Shark Tank, and yeah. you have people stand up. This was a, it's a lot more lot, a lot friendlier. No panda suits, though? No panda suits. We do have little fuzzy panda bears. Those are very important. We, we, <laughs> pandas are adorable. We try to keep it on brand. Well, you don't mess with pandas, either. That's well, why it's such a good sigil for the nonprofit. <laughs> pandas are uh, they're, they're cute and fuzzy. But you don't want to mess with one, and they can kick your ass. So it's a perfect, <laughs> perfect uh, animal metaphor for the nonprofit sector. Uh, but then they get up there, and, and we, we use our, our business plan, the first aspects of our business plan framework. What problem are you solving? Why are you the best? What's success look like? And then we get into you know strategies for growth and impact. How are you going to get there? And then... Uh, we, uh, I facilitate a dialogue where the, the, the Mighty Pandas are critiquing the, and, and providing new ideas. We had a global neonatal organization that's working on training um, uh, uh, birth teams in, in low-income countries. Half a million babies die a year uh, in, in low-resource environments for preventable um, issues. We had a, a, a gentleman trying to create a new financing stream for food security. We had an individual who's... Um, uh, radically uh, cool idea for a um, uh, uh, health commons project. You heard it here first. The health commons project is going to transform healthcare in the United States by creating a digital infrastructure of all the community organizations that serve vulnerable populations. They uh, lower costs like 60% and get much better health outcomes. They're actually making progress. Anyhow, you get fascinating organizations like this who get up and uh, often are, 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 are again, they're, they're sometimes, some are fairly mature organizations. Most are small to mid-size. When I say mid-size in our space, that's under $5 million a year. 
And then they have a dialogue with the Mighty Pandas. And, you know, I think what we need to do, uh, we did, we, we filmed one. We've got some footage for that. We need to put it on, uh, put it on screen. But that's something we want to do a, a bunch more of, to socialize the concept, not just fast, fast pitch. Fast pitch is cool, but you get up there and you do your thing and you're done. This is a, a dialogue with real, uh, you know, proven leaders in the space where you, ha you have a dialectic and you really just try to pull apart what the business model is and what the strategies are. So what do they take away? Is it like a winner at the end? Like on a... No, but everyone comes out of it so energized. Um, no, it, it's just it, it's just a um, it, it's a way. So when you, if you're kind of just feedback in a conversation, you got to get outside of your own head. Yeah. You got to get side of you got to look at um, a new perspective. So if you're a nonprofit executive or a fundraiser or board member, it's so <clears throat> helpful to hear another nonprofit um, in a completely different space articulate their um, mission and their value and their strategy um, and hear the feedback that they're getting from experts. It just becomes another reference point. Um, all the feedback that we get from people are, is very, very positive that, hey, I come out, came out of that with some new ideas. Uh, it's all volunteer. Um, the, the pandas love it because uh, they get a chance to engage. And the dynamic in the room is just terrific. We, we really enjoy it. So very cool. Yeah. No, it's just one of the ways. How, how, how do you broadcast? How do you engage people with you know, enterprise business methodology for the social sector. I mean, this is really wonky stuff. And it's, uh, you know, it's complicated and it's hard to explain it, what it is. So one of the ways, you know, it's part of the ways that, that we engage, we give back to the community. We also, it's one of our, our I think the only thing we do for marketing, uh, other than our website too, is just to try to share with people what we do. You mentioned that term called uh, the Japanese term about getting out of the bed in the morning. Ikigai. 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 I want. If I had a tattoo, it would be Ikigai. <laughs> I don't have any tattoos, but if you're gonna get ink. Ikigai is some pretty cool ink. So what gets you out of bed in the morning? This work, absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll, can I tell a couple stories? Please do. Yeah. What really got me fired up was one of the grantees. One of my first consulting gigs. The, the, the philanthropy was giving this grantee $25,000 and they were attacking um, the problem of electronic waste. And when you take your cell phone and when you recycle it or you throw a computer away, we're talking 50,000 metric tons a year of stuff that's filled with cadmium, beryllium, arsenic, lead, PVC. This is really nasty stuff. It's filled with toxic garbage. And what do we do in the United States? We ship it to China and Africa, where it ends up in uh, fires um, that are tended by children. And to pull out the chips or to pull out the, 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 the copper wires and things like that. So it's a tremendous gray market. And this was back in 2007. And the, um, these recycling companies were, oh yeah, we're green recycles, green recyclers. For you know? America. Oh yeah. You know, and then just send it off to the developing world and, and crap all over them. And this was a, an activist organization that discovered the problem and publicized it. And uh, they, uh, but they were fueled with grants. They were running on grants and they were basically starving to death. And they hired a traditional nonprofit fundraiser who set up a gala for them. Uh, she didn't even raise her salary and they all had to go basically on unemployment. 
And we got there. Uh, it was my first consulting gig uh, with Altruist, uh, first or second. And uh, I said, we're going to write you a business plan. We're going to write a business plan. And we did a lot of work. We talked to a lot of smart people. And we decided to launch a certification program based on this, um, uh, based on a, a truly transparent, accountable, positive, uh, uh, good recycling standard. And we wrote a business plan. And we were able to raise a lot of money for it. And we signed up a bunch of corporate partners. I won't go into all the details and the strategies, but we took that organization from 250,000 up to about a million and a half dollars in about 18 months. We got corporate partners like Samsung, LG, Capital One, Bloomberg, a lot of hard work, uh, raised a half a million dollars in capital and built the certification program that turned into a million dollars a year of a licensing campaign. And that was, um, it was a, a team effort, uh, but, I was the one banging on the table. Hey, you know, there's got to be a business plan in here somewhere. There's companies that will pay for this and we can figure out how to monetize this in an in ethical way. Uh, another story is um, my favorite story and a career highlight is Treehouse. Everybody in Seattle is, is familiar with Treehouse um, and, and they're becoming nationally famous. For years, they tried to move the needle on, um, they work with foster kids. Foster kids, no fault of their own, uh, become highly traumatized by a system that moves them around. Uh, they, don't, they, don't, they often don't have people that love them. It costs them IQ points. They, graduate, they drop out of uh, high school across the country. At the, at 60% is a graduation rate uh, nationwide. Um, actually, no, it's four, excuse me, 40%. They, 60% dropout rates. Only 3% of foster children even attain a postgraduate certificate. Their most likely outcome if your foster child is unemployment, homelessness, drug abuse, suicide. It's tragic. And there's 450,000 foster youth in the United States. Massive social problem. They tried for years to, they, they gave them material support. They gave them um, as much love as they could. They gave them uh, a clothing. They ran a warehouse. But then they tried to move the needle and provide educational support. They wanted to foster uh, they, they wanted to um, uh, catalyze an increase in the graduation rate. They tried for years and they failed. Fancy consultants, uh, lots of they, uh, lots of PhDs in there, and they couldn't move the needle. Um, thankfully, uh, they they were uh, Janice Avery, the CEO, hired us. We wrote a business plan, uh, got rid of 21 pages of data. We focused on three metrics: attendance, behavior, coursework. Um, we uh, got them out of the auction. We hired a bunch of uh, fundraising um, uh, uh, people. We focused on face-to-face uh, uh, -face solicitation and on the strength of the business plan and on the strength of the model. Uh, and we did some very, very, and, and the strength of a very, very strong board and a, and a great executive team and a beautiful, uh, beautiful, wonderful, uh, incredibly courageous CEO. We raised $8 million for a $6 million organization. We didn't call it a capital campaign. We said, look, we have to raise money to execute this business plan. Um, and then we focused. We uh, really stayed on those metrics, attendance, behavior, coursework. And again, very difficult. But um, five years later, uh, the graduation rates, they went from 75 staff to 150 staff, from 26 schools to 150 schools, from, uh, we took graduation rates all across the entire city, uh, across the entire county, from 40% uh, to above 85% and, and, and almost above their peers, the peer, peer rates 80%. Massive social transformation.
okay? A moonshot, people were telling Janice Avery, you can't do this, it's not possible, right? And she had the chutzpah, the, the courage to, she articulated a BHAG, she said in 2012, by 2017, every child within King County will graduate at the rate of their peers and have a plan for the future. We're gonna eliminate the achievement gap from the most vulnerable population, and we crushed it. We knocked it out of the, we raised the money, we executed with discipline, and we made it happen. This is what blows my mind. You look at a heat map of the United States. Graduation rates are all red. Washington is green. We know exactly how to do this. Why are not? Why are people not going, oh my gosh, how'd you do that? Let's do it too. Let's scale that out. So every time we work with a client that works with vulnerable populations and they want to move the needle on graduation rates and, and that's the ticket, right? Graduate, high school graduation is a key indicator whether a kid's going to have a, a future or not. It's not the only indicator, but it's a big, big causal factor. And we know how to move graduation rates. We know how to do it. You just take what Treehouse did and it, it works with any vulnerable population. How come the entire, why, why the Gates Foundation isn't just totally adopting that? Why aren't all of the other, um, we have a roadmap project here in Seattle that's trying to close graduation rates. They've spent $5 million of the Gates money um, a year for 10 years. They're not moving the needle at all. All they gotta do is go over to the treehouse model and say, tell us how to do it. But they don't. So why has that happened? And once you've proven the model, this is my great frustration. Because like, that's, a, that's the biggest problem in nonprofit. You have, Bingo. The, you have pre-pilot, which is a big challenge. Then you have post-pilot. Usually post-pilot is where the magic happens. It, so this is the thing. So in the private sector, if someone was able to do something better, faster, cheaper, everybody's going to copy them. They're going to they're going to right over there, and they're going to like they're going to use it. If you've got a, a better mousetrap, we've proven, and, and not just with with foster children. We, we can do this with affordable housing. You can do this with it with we did it in the environmental space. <clears throat> when you create an innovation, people go, "Oh, that's nice," but how cute? How isn't that nice? No one gets fired in philanthropy for making a crappy grant. And people are not held accountable for their performance to the degree I believe they should be in the social space. And why um, major funders aren't looking and saying, wow, they can do it. Why don't you go figure it out and, and go make that happen? There's too much, um, uh, people have so much inertia, their, their fear of change. They don't believe, oh, a treehouse is different. Janice Avery's a level five leader, as Jim Collins would call her. She's incredible. She had a great team. But that core methodology can translate. And one of my biggest frustrations um, is how come, where's the curiosity? Where's the people willing to go, well, how did you do that and how do we, how did we get it out there? Um, and again, uh, that's, that's hard. Uh, but again, we're looking at that not as something to complain about, but as an opportunity. So again, we're working with lots of like youth mentoring organizations. We work with any, anyone in the educational space, uh, anyone who's working in the, the vulnerable youth space, we're actually, hey, roll it. You gotta read the book, Four Disciplines of Execution. You gotta have a business plan. You gotta learn how to you know, raise money. There's a, there's a recipe that you can follow. It's, it's hard, but man, it beats the status quo. But where's the curiosity when, when Treehouse made this incredible leap? Um, I wonder about that. That that makes me discouraged sometimes, but again, I try to flip it around and stay optimistic.
So what's your next project? Oh, uh, gosh. Um, eating my own dog food. <laughs> and it's a joke. Uh, but we are trying to grow ourselves. And uh, we truly believe that we have a, a, a process that's ready for uh, duplication and dissemination. Um, I'm writing a book. I'm taking the whole methodology and I'm going to put it into... I need a title for it, so uh, like the definitive guide to nonprofit or social impact scale, something like that. Nonprofit Bible, we'll call it something. And where we lay out this entire methodology, we lay out the literature. So that's going to be a big piece. Having done all this experimentation, we've we've got something that that works with any nonprofit and any you know it doesn't matter what arts, education, healthcare, human services, and the environment. That it's a scale platform. So getting that book out there. Uh, is number one. Um, and then number two, trying to bring on, I've been working very hard in how to work with a team and how to actually build a firm. So we're trying to serve more nonprofits and expand our own work to try and do more good. Um, and it's really, really hard to do this work for other clients and also um, have the, the time and energy to um, do the do the organization building yourself. So it's flying made, the airplane and building at the same time. It's made me very humble. I used to say this was easy because I had this great track record and I couldn't swing a dead cat without raising a million bucks. And now it's like, wow, I really understand it's hard because I'm doing the work of serving my clients, but you know, then it's, am I starving my own organization? So um, it's really difficult, but um, thankfully we've got some tremendous people. I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate with the people that I work with and um you have to you have to know your strengths and you have to complement your weaknesses with other people on your team and like anything you just got to keep at it and you got to just have an incredible amount of uh, uh, determination. But the the joke is they say uh, you know building your own business is like getting punched in the face repeatedly, uh, but working for somebody else is like being waterboarded. <laughs> so I, I try not to complain. Well, sounds great. We'll catch you on the flip side. Sure. Yeah, see how are you doing? Yeah, well, we're we're we're, we're working on it, Dirk, and and the same thing. Uh, you have one of the most important social impact missions going on right now, so uh, we look forward to working with you to so you can harness the capital uh, and deploy it to um, you know take the people that were just punishing for no reason and uh, turn them into productive citizens. And I wish you all the best. Thank you, Donald. Thanks Talk for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me in, Dirk.